Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. All right, this morning, let's take our Bibles together and dive into God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Acts with me, the book of Acts. It's been a few weeks since we've been there together, but we're in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning, if you'd be so kind as to find the 14th verse of Acts chapter 2. And when you've done that, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word, let's read His Word together and see what He has to say to us this morning. So, Acts chapter 2. Starting in the 14th verse, we're just going to read a short part of it this morning, and it reads like this. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Father, this morning... We have been immensely blessed by our time worshiping you, by our fellowship together, our Sunday school time, the time with our children, the music, Father, this morning just so blessed my heart, reminding me that I need to take time in my life to be still and know that you are God. So now, Father, as we're still this morning, recognizing the fact that you are God and we open your word, I ask this of you, that you speak to us. You do that by making very little of me. And very much of you this morning that you may be glorified in this place. And we ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, we started a while back looking at the book of Acts. We detoured a bit through the holiday season to look at uh, the cradle and and what that cradle held. And we've had uh, uh, several messages along the way that have interrupted our time in Acts together. But we're back this morning. We're back, so let me catch you up real fast where we're at in the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts has, has introduced to us the fact that there's going to be the formation of this thing called the church. This thing called the church. Until now, until we get to the book of Acts in the Bible, there, there's been no church. In the Old Testament, there wasn't even really a sign of a church that, that was to come. And even as Jesus walked on the earth, there was no church. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Has there ever been a time in your life that there's been no church? I mean, there seems to have always been a church. We must remember that the church is really coming to life here in the book of Acts. But Jesus had now come down to earth. He had spent 30 some odd years walking this earth. He had, he had chosen 12 men to be his disciples. He'd gone about the countryside, if you remember, healing and feeding and raising people from the dead. He had ministered to all kinds of people, all races of people, all uh, people from every corner of, of the area. He had preached the need for repentance and and for forgiveness of their sins. He'd he'd even confronted those religious leaders and said, hey, your rituals, the things that you try to do, those things that you think are appealing to God will not get you into heaven or a right relationship with God. Those things just won't happen. He had time and time and time again made the point that he was the only way to a right relationship with God. Why? Because he was God. And he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And for this, the people had hung him on a cross and crucified him. For his proclamation that there is a way and I am the way, they hang him on a cross and kill him. He was hung there to die like an ordinary criminal. Three days later, they found out the words that he had spoken were true because the tomb was found to be empty because he had truly risen from the dead just as he said he would. By the power of God through the Holy Spirit, he lives 
He lives. And we saw in chapter 1, in chapter 1 of Acts, and he returned, and he spent 40-some days with, with the disciples, and it says they were teaching and uh, uh, the believers all the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he'd come, he'd died on a cross, he'd, he'd been buried, he'd risen again, he'd come back, he'd spent time with them, and he continued teaching them all those things that pertain to the kingdom. And then it tells us in chapter 1 that he ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, to prepare for us a place that we will Go to one day to be with him. You see the picture as the book of Acts un unveils itself in chapter 1. Then we moved into chapter 2. In chapter 2 we saw that great and glorious day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit had come just as Jesus had promised. That at his exit he would send another helper. One to be a comforter. One to lead, to guide, to indwell them. And sure enough on the day of Pentecost 40 days later. Wham! Shows up the Holy Spirit. And boy, did the Holy Spirit come in a spectacular way. He came in a spectacular way. Remember, it says that his entrance was announced with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it appeared as tongues of fire that rested on each of those in the room. And then those were, who were filled with the Spirit, it tells us in that second chapter, verse number 4, it says that they began to speak in other tongues or other languages. Chapter 2 goes on to tell us for... Those not in the room, those that weren't present, those that the Holy Spirit didn't light upon, for, for those that were just in town, so to speak, their attention was suddenly drawn to this indwelling Holy Spirit, to this scene, so to speak. Verse 6 actually tells us that the multitudes came together and they were confused. I could imagine confusion. You hear the sound of a hurricane. Yet the tree doesn't move. You, you see tongues of fire resting upon men. And suddenly they're speaking in other languages. What, why the other languages? Remember why they were gathered in Jerusalem? The Passover. Gathered from all over. From all regions. And when they came running to the scene of this wind and these tongues of fire. Lo and behold they heard these unlearned Galileans. Speaking in their language. Confused? Understatement. I believe they were extremely, extremely confused. And as they stood there in amazement at what was happening, that's where we step into the story this morning. Just as they were standing there in all this amazement, we now step into this story. Keep in mind, again, that there has never been anything called a church since time began. <laughs> Yes, there's been temples, there's been synagogues, there's been tabernacles, there's been tents. <laughs> but the church is not the same as those things. The church is not even this building that you sit in this morning. It's not the pews that you rest upon. It's not behind the sign that happens to sit outside. See, the church is not a group of like-minded people getting together inside of a building we have masons that do that, and we have other clubs that do that same thing, and they're definitely not a church. <laughs> it, it's not even the church. It's not even people that are the same culturally or, or ethnically and having a time of fellowship with one another or spending time learning about something. That, that is not the church. Jesus tells us what the church is. The church is his body, the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The head guides all things that happen in the body. And the church is 
corporately gathered together as the body of Christ under the head, the lead, the leadership, the headship of Christ. And that church is the continuation of what Jesus Christ came to this earth to do. See, the church makes itself manifest in its continuation of Christ's work on this earth. That's what comes out of a church. And, and what did he come to do? What, what did Jesus? Why? Why would Jesus step out of a place called heaven to come to this earth to put on a body to suffer death on a cross? Why? From his own lips, he says, for the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. <laughs> and who is it that is lost, by the way? That's the question that comes to mind. Who is it that is lost? Jesus also answers that with his very words in Luke 5.31 when he says, Those who are well, you know what? They have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, those who think they are righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save that which lost. And, and who is it that is lost? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, when you stand at the foot of the cross, it's level playing field. Everybody plays by the exact same rules. There is no standard set apart for the rich or the poor, for the white or the black, for those from America versus those from the, the darkest regions of Africa. No, there's only one standard. Everybody who stands at the foot of the cross must realize that you have sinned against a holy God. And you're in the same boat as everybody else. And if it wasn't for Jesus, you would die in that sin. You see, it says we've all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the church, the church then is the body of Christ. Those who know him, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, being Christ to the world. Going to those that still haven't recognized the fact that they have sinned against the holy God and turned their life over to Jesus. We are to be about seeking those who are sinners and calling them to repentance. That's our purpose. That's what the church is. If you want to know if a church is a church, look at how many they're calling to repentance. If the answer is none, I would dare say they're not the church. See, there's been a decline in this nation over a number of years of those coming to the baptismal pool having trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's not because the gospel doesn't work. It's not because the gospel is not effective. It's not because God has changed. It's not because man has a better way. No, it's because the church has become lazy. That's the problem. The gospel is effective. The delivery system is messed up. It's messed up. See, if we are to be the church, we are to do that which Christ did. And what did Christ do? <laughs> he died that you might have eternal life. Have you died to self that others may have eternal life? If not, I would dare say you're not being the church. But how do we call them? How do we call them to repentance? For the first time in all of history, for the first time in all of history, we're about to see this church be birthed and at the first gathering after the filling of the holy spirit when all believers and unbelievers are gathered together at the amazement that's just taking place with the entry of the holy spirit we see the message of christ preached in an awesome way in an awesome way and that's where we start our journey today let me begin by saying this 
this passage is so convicting for a pastor. So convicting for a pastor. If you know how it ends, 3,000 turn to Jesus Christ. 3,000. But it's not just the conversion factor. It's the way the gospel message was presented. And it is so convicting. This is the first time that we see this post-resurrection sermon ever being delivered. It's the first time. It's, it's the example given by God in the Holy Scriptures about how preaching should be done. And when I read this sermon, which, which goes on down towards the end of chapter 2, when I read it, I see my shortcomings in the delivery of the gospel message. And I hope as you read it, you see your shortcomings in the delivery of that message, the church's shortcomings in the delivery of that message. But I have good news. God's still in the forgiving business. If we've come up short, if we've come up short in what we've done in the past, there's good news. There's tomorrow. There's tomorrow. And the God of today will forgive you of those shortcomings of yesterday and empower you to overcome them in the day ahead. But see, this passage is more than just a passage to pastors. It's a message to all of those. To all of those who claim the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. It's a message of how that decoration in your life, that announcement in your life that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, how that decoration in your life should change your interaction with the world around you. So let's look at this passage together. I've entitled this mini-series because there's going to be several messages out of this particular message of, of Peter's. Aren't you glad that I didn't preach Peter's sermon or it probably ran over to somewhere about chapter 7 if I'd have preached it. He only got it in a few verses, but there'll be a few messages. They'll all be entitled this, Preaching Leads to Persuasion. Preaching Leads to Persuasion. The first way that preaching leads to persuasion is by its example. That's as far as we'll get today because you're going to see there's quite an example in this very first part of this verse. Matter of fact, in Acts 2.14, the first two words say, But Peter. <laughs> but Peter. I don't think we're going to need much more this morning than but Peter. See, when I read that, and you have to be very careful when you read Scripture, sometimes you're so quick to skip over the things that seem so unimportant that you miss the magnitude of the example that's laid out before you. <laughs> this but Peter. <laughs> but Peter, who is this person, Peter. That is about to deliver this message, the first post-resurrection gospel message of Jesus Christ. Who is this Peter? Why this Peter? We know that Peter was, was one of the apostles, one of the apostles. Matter of fact, back in Matthew, back in Matthew, we see him becoming one of the apostles. He's a, uh, the person that's going to deliver it. He was handpicked by Jesus. It tells us in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, the 18th verse, it says, And Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. So here's Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, walking by the Sea of Galilee, which he created. And it says he sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, and they're casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. <laughs> they immediately left their nets and followed him. So where do we see Peter introduced into the story of, of the Bible for us? We see him here in Matthew. As Jesus is strolling by the sea, he sees these two brothers sitting by the sea, and, and they're preparing their nets because that was how they made their living. That's what they did all night, that they might bring in food both for their families but to sell, that they might have money. So, so he sees them there by the sea, and he just walks up to them, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I love those next words in 20. It says, they immediately, <laughs> they immediately. 
When God spoke, they responded immediately. It says they, they dropped all that they were doing and, and they followed him. He said, follow me. And, and they did. They left their occupation. We go on to find out they left their families. They, they went all over the place. They, they left everything to follow this Jesus. But also notice that even in that verse that there's something different about Simon and his name. It's Simon called Peter. He's a man of two names. He's a man of two names, Simon and Peter. When we see Simon mentioned in the Gospels, or Peter mentioned in the Gospels, we see those names interchanged. They're not interchanged because the writer can't decide what to call them. (laughs) Simon's often used when Peter's acting like his old, not obedient self (laughs) that acts like the world. Peter is most often used when he's acting in a manner that reflects a life that's been changed by meeting this Jesus. So I find it interesting that he's called Simon and Peter. How, how do I know that that's the way it's used? Over in Matthew, since you hopefully you turn to Matthew with me, over in Matthew 16, we see it pretty clear in Matthew 16 from the lips of, of Jesus. In Matthew 16, down at the 13th verse, let me tell you how the story goes. In the 13th verse, there's a question that's asked. There's a question that's asked, and, and it's, it's Jesus asking the question. He says this, Who do men say that I, the Son of God, am? Well, you know, there were several answers thrown out, but then in the 16th verse, old Simon Peter, it says, steps up. Old Simon Peter steps up and answered and said, You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Wow, what a statement. Oh, Simon Peter steps to the front. You know, it was known. I think he'll be identifiable in heaven because his mouth is going to be shaped exactly like a foot. You know, I've told you that before because Simon Peter was the one that jumped immediately right in front of everybody to spurt out whatever he was thinking. Most times, wrong. (laughs) But he jumped out. This time, apparently hit the nail on the head. Because down in the 18th verse of that, it says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. See, there's this beautiful thing in the words of Simon Peter. This beautiful thing that strikes a a chord in the heart of the Almighty God. And it's that Peter... Simon Peter said what we all believe, what what we all rally around, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, He came that we might be saved, and He lives that we might have hope of eternal life. And that statement, that statement, Jesus said, Simon Peter, that's the Peter in you. Because that statement is what I will build my church on. And the gates of hell have no chance against my church. What an awesome statement. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Simon and Peter interchanged. Simon and Peter get interchanged a lot. Matter of fact, in that 16th chapter, since you turned there, in that 16th chapter, there's actually another place that we see just shortly after. We see in Matthew 16, just after Jesus says he will build his church on the statement of faith that Peter made, over in the 21st through the 23rd verses, we see Peter step up to Jesus and have the audacity, the audacity to rebuke the Christ. The son of the living God. 
He steps up to the man he just said, you're Christ, you're the son of the living God. And just a few short verses later, he rebukes him. He rebukes him when he says in the 22nd verse, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. What is this? Back in that 21st verse, Jesus has just said, there's going to come a time that I'm going to suffer. There's going to come a time that I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders, the priests, the scribes. And there's going to be a time that I am going to be killed. But don't worry. Three days later, I'm going to rise. Peter steps up. The man who's just said, you're Christ, the son of the living God, pulls Jesus to the side and said, what are you thinking? Not going to happen. No, you're wrong. That's what he's saying to him. <laughs> Look how Jesus responds to him. 23rd verse. Get behind me, Satan. See, even the man who just uttered the words on which the church, the foundation of the church is being laid, allowed Satan to slip into his thoughts and his words to the almighty Christ that he had just proclaimed. Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. You are offense for me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He said, Peter, Peter, Simon, Peter. You've let Satan turn your vision away from me to the vision of the world. And now he was standing in the way of why Jesus had come to this earth and what it was he had said he had come to do, what his mission would be, and how it would be accomplished. We see that same Simon Peter. Matter of fact, there's another interesting thing back in the 14th chapter. You'll know the story. You can turn there if you'd like. It's over about the 22nd verse. It says in the 14th chapter of Matthew that Jesus had just come off of this glorious feeding of thousands of people with just a, a few little scraps. He had come off of this feeding, and, and it says there in the 22nd verse, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. He wanted some time alone. He wanted to be able to go over with them. And he says, you guys, get in the boat. You sail to the other side. I'll meet you there. I find it interesting. Nobody goes, how is he going to get over there? They just did as they were instructed. They get in a boat. You know the story. As they get into the boat, they, they leave. And while they're going to the other side, they find themselves caught in this terrible storm. And in verse 25 tells us then that Jesus comes strolling along on the top of these waves that are breaking over into the boat. He's just taking a leisurely stroll across the ocean, across that sea, right out to their boat. <laughs> and they see him. They see him, it says, and, and it says whatever they see him, that they are afraid there in the 26th verse. And they cry out and say, what is this, a ghost? They see Jesus walking on the water. And their immediate thought is, it's a ghost coming. It doesn't get any worse than this. But Jesus calms their fear. He calms their fear by saying, hey, fear not, guys. Don't worry. It is me. It, it is I. I've come. You don't have to worry. Jesus is here. And in verse 28, verse 28, after Jesus shows up, uh, he's still some ways from the boat. He said, don't be scared. It's not a ghost. It's me. We see old Peter. We see old Peter in verse 28. And Peter, verse 28, answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. There's been many sermons preached as whether or not he was questioning whether or not that was Jesus or what, what it was actually asking. But what he did say is, if it's you, command and I will come to you. 
If you read on down, you'll notice that Jesus said, come. Jesus looked at him and said, if you want to come, come. And old Peter bails out of the boat. You'll notice that when he bails out of the boat, he too is walking on water. He too is walking on water. You see this picture of Peter placing his trust in Jesus when he was chosen and now when he stepped out on the water. When Jesus said, come, what did Peter believe? He had the ability to come to Jesus on the water. He never thought that he would bail out of the boat and sink, else he wouldn't have stepped out of the boat. He had this faith. He was placing this faith in who Jesus was. And Don't we all want to be like Peter? Don't we all want to be like Peter when the storms of life come? When the storms of life come and we can see no end and the waves are crashing into our boat and the wind has blown the sails off. Don't we want to be like Peter? And when we see Jesus, we say, Jesus, I need you so bad. I just want to come to you in the midst of this storm. Just and Jesus says, come. Don't we want to be just like Peter? But notice verse 30. Verse 30 tells us that Peter steps out of the boat and there's this problem. It says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he again was afraid and he began to sink. Oftentimes we are a lot like Peter. When the storm comes up, we, we cry out to Jesus. You call, we want to be with you. We want this to go away. We want to be in your presence. And the moment we start that direction, somehow the waves become our focal point. The wind starts seeming to pick up. We lose sight of that which had commanded us, that person who commanded us, Jesus, and we start noticing that there are waves higher than us. There are winds about to blow us over. The minute we take our eyes off of Jesus, we, like Peter, sink. <laughs> we, like Peter, sink. But thank goodness the story didn't stop there because at the end of that 30th verse, it says that Peter cried out saying, Lord, Save me. Lord, save me. He had just a few short verses earlier said, Lord, command me and I will come. And now when things are falling apart, he says, Lord, save me. He realized, just like we must realize, that there is only one who can save. And his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is only one. He didn't call for the boat to come get him. He didn't yell for a life ring. He didn't start swimming. He called on Jesus. You have to realize there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. We see lots and lots of examples of the dualism of this Simon and Peter, but there's no more known place in the book of John, the book of John in the 18th chapter. The 18th chapter, we see the last days of the life of Jesus. We know that Jesus frequented the garden to go pray and and we see him in the 18th chapter over in that, that garden praying. And while he was praying there, Judas, one of the original 12 who had chosen to betray him, this, this Judas was making arrangements for the arrest of Jesus. It says there in the Word that, that he knew exactly where he would be because Jesus frequented this place. He knew that when he went there, he oftentimes went alone or just with a few so there'd be little resistance. Judas knew that if there was any place that we could grab a hold of this Jesus character, if there was anywhere that we could grasp him without a crowd of people interfering, the garden was the place. So while Jesus is in the garden, Judas meets with those that 
that he has agreed to lead to Jesus. It says that he comes with a detachment of troops and representatives from the religious leaders. That's interesting, isn't it? A group of troops and these religious leaders, these representatives. And it tells us there in, in verse 10 that they had come, and it says in verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. We see this Simon Peter. When Judas shows up, Simon doesn't fall on his knees and pray, Father, please protect us. So Simon, human Simon, reaches for his sword and strikes the closest person to him. We see him immediately just jump into the fight. He decides it's all hands on deck. I'm going with what I know. I'm going to slaughter them all. That's what he's thinking in his mind. But then you'll notice in verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Remember the rebuke back when he said, you're never going to die. Jesus had said, what would you have me not do? What it is that I've come to do is what he was saying. Would you... Would you have me ignore that which God has sent me for? Would you have me just, Peter, what are you thinking? Jesus has already said, I'm I'm going to die. There's going to be this day that I'm going to be brutalized and murdered. Here's the day. Peter jumps in in his worldly fashion, and Jesus tells him, put that away. Shall I not drink what he's saying? You want me to not do that? Which my father has sent me for? Peter. Simon Peter. See, Simon Peter was quick to turn what he could do in the flesh to help. (laughs) But Jesus reminded him that what he wanted Peter to do was God's will in the situation. And what was God's will in the situation? That Jesus be taken in. That he be tried. Never proven guilty. But murdered for us that he might be placed in a tomb, having paid for our sins, and rise again, that we might have life eternal through what he did. That was God's will. What he was telling Simon Peter is sometimes, Simon, like us, we like to get ahead of God, don't we? Sometimes sometimes we like to use our earthly wisdom to decide what we are going to do for God. God wants us to understand that His ways are so far greater than our ways and that we are to do it His way. His way. The most memorable moment of dualism in the life of Simon Peter comes right along in this same 18th chapter of John. When Jesus was taken to Annas to be tried, Simon Peter, it says, followed along with another behind a distance behind, because remember, remember they had, they had feared. Jesus had said, hey, let these other ones go. If you're looking to take someone, I'm the one you're looking for, take me. And when they took him away, it says that Peter and some of the others kind of trailed behind to, to see what was, what was going to happen. And it said whenever they get to this trial before Annas, that one of the other disciples there knew the girl at the door and, and got Peter in. Got Peter where he could see, where he could get in. But there was a problem with that. There was a problem. You know the story? The servant girl who let him in 
recognized Peter. She recognized Peter and she asked if he was one of the disciples. And you know what Peter did? <laughs> Not me. Not me. No. Not this guy. It says, then, as they moved to another trial, the servants and officers were standing around outside. They were hanging out by the fire pit. The first fire pit ever written about, I guess, was there in, in the book of John. They were hanging out outside by the fire pit. Maybe they were roasting marshmallows, hot dogs, talking, whatever may be going on. And old Peter was standing there because he was freezing to death, got warming himself. It says he was hanging out, uh, warming himself. And it says over, uh, I think it's over like the 26th verse or so, it says, uh, one of the servants to the high priest was a relative. Right before that, it said that there was a, a group that was standing there by the fire. And it says that group group standing by the fire said, don't I know you? Aren't you one of them? There's something about you that makes us think that you were with that Galileo. Aren't you one? <laughs> Peter says, duh, duh, you got it all wrong. Would I be standing here if I was one of them? No, I'm here for the show. I'm here to see what's going to happen. I'm just hanging out by the fire, guys. Nice fire. Didn't it pass me a marshmallow? He immediately says, no, it's not me. It's not me. And that 26th verse, it says that it, even one of the servants that was standing there, a relative of Malchus, who had lost an ear at the sword of Peter in the garden, looks at Peter and says, dude, didn't I see you over in the garden? What did Peter do? No, no. Matter of fact, some of the other gospels give it to us a little heavier. It says he cursed. It said, no, it was not me. It was not me. We know what happened. Just as he said that, a rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. And I'm sure it came to, to his mind what Jesus said in Matthew 26, I think it's 34th verse, when he said, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crowed, Rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You want to see dualism in a guy? You see it in Simon Peter. Peter was some example for Jesus, wasn't he? Wow. He was continually speaking out of turn. He was usually jumping ahead of what Jesus had planned to do. He, he would make promises that he couldn't keep, such as, oh, they may all run, but not me. I'm Peter. He... <laughs> He would even insult the other disciples and say, Ah, they're weak, but they'll leave you, but you can count on me. <laughs> it, he was scared and hiding in a corner by a fire barrel on his trial. <laughs> he didn't even have the courage to say that he knew this man, Jesus. Wow. Sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? Sounds like us sometimes. Those times we don't listen to God because we're busy telling him <laughs> how it should be done. <laughs> Those times we know what God wants done, we just think we got a better way. Those times we promise God will do things and then fall short. Those times we play the super Christian and look down on others and what they're doing. Those times God gives us a chance to be bold for him, to be bold for him, and we find an excuse to hide rather than stand up for our Jesus. But here we see Peter being the first to stand and preach to those gathered. The other 11 stood with him, but he was the first one to preach, it tells us there in Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, we, we see this bold example 
of Peter, but we see another example there in that Acts chapter 2 passage also. In Acts chapter 2, 14, right after it says, But Peter, and standing up with the eleven, it says, He raised his voice and he said, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Peter takes what has just been spoken of about the 120, and he uses it as a launch into who this Jesus is. You see, because in the 13th verse, it says, Others were mocking, saying they are full of new wine. Why did they say that? Because these unlearned Galileans were speaking in other languages. They said, surely these guys must be drunk. Look at the way they're acting. Peter uses that to launch into the story of Jesus. See, he launches in with a cultural point to them when he says, they're they're not full of new wine. They're not drunk. You know in our culture, you can't drink at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now for us, we see drunks at 9 o'clock in the morning a lot. But for them, in their culture, it was, you can't do that. He says, what are y'all thinking? What are you thinking? You know they can't be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. They, that they should even know that no one, even if they were drinking at 9 o'clock in the morning, would risk coming out among others. He starts there. He says, no. Then starting in the 16th verse, he gives them this example. This example of Scripture. We don't have time to go through all of it today, but it's, It's this example of Scripture that explains why he was bold enough to preach and leads to the message God has for him to preach. Verse 16 tells us that he's about what he's about to say comes from the book of of Joel, the prophet Joel. I know you all sit around and read the prophet Joel at night. I'm proud of you for doing that. But he reaches back to the prophet Joel. He pulls out of their learning the scripture that they knew that they would be familiar with, and he authenticates what they have just witnessed. He authenticates what they had just witnessed. If there's one thing I would love for you to get out of this today, it is the importance of basing everything you think, all that you plan, all that you say, and all that you do on one thing. This. The first time the post-resurrection sermon is preached, the first time a sermon is preached after the resurrection, it starts with authentication from the Scripture. See, God's Word is infallible. It's an error and it's God-breathed. It's the answer to all your questions. It's the guide to all of your steps. It's the only truth. It's the only truth that stands the test of times. And Christians today need to get back into the Bible. We need to use it as our focal point in all of our conversations and all of our decisions. We don't need to worry about what sounds logical in a decision. We need to worry about what God says about the decision. See, there can only be one great thing. There could be good things to do in a particular situation, but those good things can be wrong. You do realize that. See, how do we know what is the right thing? What is the great thing? What is the thing that God would want us to do? God tells us. He tells us in His Word. If a decision needs to be made, God spoke. You don't have to sit down and wait for Him to write it across the sky. Pick up your Bible and open it. He's already spoken. 
See, use the truth of the Bible to make the decisions no matter what the world says, no matter what your friends say, no matter what your co-workers say, no matter what your family says, not even what your church says is right. If it doesn't square with the book, it ain't right. It ain't right. The Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. If the Bible says it's right, it's right. See, more often than not, the criticism I get for the things I do for God are criticisms that come from worldly viewpoints, worldly vision, not godly vision. (laughs) See, and that's simply because we don't look at the world through the lens of God. We look at God through the lens of the world. It's backwards. That's backwards. We need to look at the world through the lens of God. What is that lens? The Bible. Peter takes into the book of Joel to explain what's just happened. He says in the 17th verse very quickly, it shall come to pass in the last days. What are the last days? We're living in them. The last days started when Jesus Christ set foot on this earth. That's when the last days started. He said in those last days in the 17th verse, the second part of it, he says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, lo and behold, what is that spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. And what has just happened? What has just happened that drew the crowds together? What has just happened that caught all their attention? It was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on those that were there, just as Joel prophesied years before. Years before. It was the act of the filling of the Holy Spirit that had caught all of their attention in the first place. Peter then tells them what is going to happen, and it is in fact happening right there in their midst at that moment. He tells them there's going to be prophecy or proclamation of the Word. Guess what he's about to do? Proclaim the word. He tells them there's going to be signs and wonders, and you're going to see that all through the book of Acts. He tells them there are going to be natural occurrences that nobody can explain. And he says, and there will be a day that the Lord will come again. See what he's laying out before them? See what he's laying out? He says that's going to be the great and awesome day of our Lord. And he says in the 21st verse, and it shall come to pass that whoever, whoever, Calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That anyone, anyone who calls on Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior will be saved. See the message he's setting up? And it all came because the Holy Spirit came in such a fashion that those who had no idea who this Jesus were, were standing there in amazement. And he says, let me start with where you ended. You accuse them of being drunk. Let me tell you, they're not drunk with wine. Let me tell you what's just happened. And he tells them about this almighty God that Fulfilled prophecy and the filling of the bodies, the flesh, with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) What happens? He stands up and says, thus says the Lord. If there's any message we need to give to the world today, it's thus says the Lord. (laughs) You may say in wrapping up very quickly, Pastor, that's great. (laughs) That's fine for the guys in those times, but what has that got to do with me? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you asked that question. The example of Peter is proof positive that you have no excuse when it comes to sharing the gospel. You have no excuse. Peter had a past that was way less than glamorous. Peter had walked a life with Christ that was up and down. He'd often made a fool of himself and was embarrassed, but God used him anyway. See, you may think that there are things in your past that will keep you from being an effective witness. There's a Greek word for that. It's hogwash. Hogwash. See, Satan wants you to think that. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. 
is that your past will keep you from proclaiming Jesus in your present and your future. That's what he wants you to think. His best defense to getting the gospel message out is to make you think that you aren't good enough. Well, guess what? Satan's right. You're not good enough. But understand, it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. And God is good enough. The Word of God is effectual in all that it does and all that it says. And it never, ever returns to God void. No matter how big a mess you make of it, delivering it, it never returns void. Why? Because God never fails. In fact, He's placed within you the Holy Spirit to make sure that you don't fail. He'll give you the power. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the opportunity. He'll give you the words to say. He'll give you the compassion. For those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are headed to a place called hell for all of eternity. See, like foot and mouth Peter, we'll be able to rise from the place that we're hiding, not wanting to be noticed, and we'll be able to declare, thus says the Lord. And what does the Lord declare? What does the Lord say? What is thus says the Lord? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation for God, in a place called hell for all of eternity. But it also says that God loves us. God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son to pay the wages of your sin. And that believing. That believing that God, in fact, raised him from the dead is proof positive that what he did was effective. Just believing in that and confessing him as Lord and Savior of your life guarantees that you're saved. Guarantees. And also that all of those who are saved are also commanded to be baptized as a public demonstration of that which has happened internally. The the cleansing, the washing of the inside of the vessel, the saving of Jesus Christ on your life. You're commanded to do that. As an example, Jesus did that to set the example. And it's also, thus says the Lord, is also that all who believe will be active. Active in the local body of Christ in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost in our communities. I ask you today, what's your example? What's your example? If I were telling this story about you, would you be the first point? If it said, but Roger... Would there be enough to say? To make the point of the example? Do you confess Him as your Lord and Savior? If not, today's the day you can do that. Recognize that you're a sinner. Recognize He's the only Savior. Confess with your mouth what you've come to believe in your heart. That He died for your sins and was buried and rose three days later that you might have life. Confess that with your mouth that He is your Lord and Savior. You come. Come to the front. I'll pray with you. I'll announce to the body. What you have done. And your first step towards towards standing and saying, thus says the Lord. For those who do profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me ask you this. Are you letting excuses take away your example? Are you letting excuses affect your witness? I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. I'm too busy. What if Jesus had said that? What if he had said, I'm too busy for you? You'd spend eternity in a place called hell. That's what would have happened. But he didn't. He didn't. Do you believe that the proclamation of the gospel persuades the lost to be saved? Do you believe that? That the gospel saves people? If you do, what kind of example are you of that gospel? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. 
Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.